0: Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by The Pulp Net, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines, since 1996, online at ThePulp.net. In this pulp event podcast, Rusty Burke talks with PulpCon guest of honor Glenn Lord about Robert D. Howard and the pulp magazines. It was recorded in 2007, at PulpCon 36 in Dayton, Ohio. Here is Rusty
1: start out with a simple question. How did the nice kid from Pelican, Louisiana,
2: get involved with pulp magazines in the first place? Pulp, pulp magazines I finally ran to when I was going to school at Alexandria, Louisiana. Someone had bought some plant stores and I borrowed on the river. So I started to go buying plant stores in FFM and the FN off the stands when I could afford them. Which was very seldom at the time. I lived out in the country, and needless needed to say, I didn't have a whole lot of money. I still don't have a whole lot of money before that goes. <laughs> what were your favorites
1: early on? You mean the uh, in the pulp and the in the Oh, your, your favorite writers.
2: Oh, I liked uh, Paul Anderson uh, and uh, Ray Bradbury and uh, and others of that ilk. How did you discover Robert e. Howard? That's a long story. <laughs> Good, I'll sit back here and let you tell the okay. <laughs> It depends on your point of view. You can credit it to, or if you prefer, blame it on a guy named Bradford M. Day from. South Ozone Park, New York. I was corresponding with him. Dave was a a fan, a small-time publisher, and a sometime bookseller. When I moved to Placid, Texas, and got a job, I could afford more books, so he started selling books, and he recommended uh, the Arkham House, Skull Face, and others. At that time, Arkham House was in kind of in bad shape, I think. Uh, they were selling their books at discount. I got Skull face for $4, which is not a bad price, I suppose, nowadays. <laughs> so I, liked, I read it and I liked it. So I started looking for other Robert E. Howard stuff. The only thing available to, at that time was the non press Colonel the Conqueror. Then I got invited, if you won't call it that, to the United States Army. <laughs> uh, so I wound up in Korea. That's what you call a in the army. Yeah. And uh, so I was 52 and uh, part of 53, most of 53, in fact. So. Uh, I came back to the United States and I found out that the pup magazines had just about to all disappeared off the stands. So at that time, I uh, read a couple of the Arkham House poetry collections, you know, Carcassian Smith and Hornbook for Witches by uh, Leobold Dean Drake. I liked the looks of, of those books and I had seen some Howard Poetry in Dark of the Moon by and I liked Howard's poetry, so I thought, well, it'd be a great idea if somebody was to uh, collect the, the Howard poetry and put it in book form. So I got permission from uh, Oscar Friend, who was a Howard agent, and uh, I managed to collect the, the published poetry out of Weird Tales and a few fanzines. And uh, Donald... Woldheim got the collection, this, the, uh, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> got the uh, poems out of Alton and American Poetry for and American Poet, out of the New York Public Library, and I went to Cross Plains thinking, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, I went to Brownwood thinking that the Howard Vane University Library would have a Robert E. Howard collection, but well, that was just a myth as far as that goes very close to what the, the yearbooks used, used to say. There was a guy named Dr. Thomas M. Havens there. He gave me a copy of the uh, Howard poem Tempter, And uh, I ran across a guy named let's see Bill Chambers. I believe he was in May Texas. He was a I believe he was a former in that area, but he had a son named uh, Norris Chambers, who had been connected with Howard at one time. Norris Chambers, it turned out, had a few unpublished Howard poems, so I got those through my good friend uh, Dale Hart, and uh, we include that in uh, Always Comes Evening. My first idea was to publish Always Come to Union myself, But I found out I couldn't get it published, or, or I shouldn't say published, I mean, printed inbound at a price I could sell it for about $3 for. So Derleth suggested I send the manuscript to him, and he was into to George Benham. George Benham bid on it, and uh, it was a pretty good price. But he dearly told me that Bannon would not accept a new uh customer.
1: <coughs>
2: so he suggested that I uh excuse me that I uh send a book to them and let them publish it as an Arkham House book. One of the books sold, said, and I would get a certain percentage of the money of each sale, so I'd give a money back I'd paid out for the rights. I don't know if I ever came out even or not, and I, I, I never checked it out. Somewhere close to being even, I guess. I think uh, 636 copies of have always come to England and published, and I think it's eight hundred something dollars for all 636 copies. The last hundred copies were labeled on the spine correctly. They put the uh, labeling on the spine on all the other copies backwards. That's not terribly important, I don't think. I understand the copy is worth about $600 nowadays in good shape. That's, that's, a bit, that's a little bit better than uh, buying stock. <laughs> and
1: I went directly to the Calo youth from Pasadena, Texas, uh, being the agent. How did that
2: come coming up. Thank you. <clears throat> Starting in 61, I started the Howard Collector, which is a small fanzine. I based the title on Ray's Orange, the local Collector. Uh, Oscar Friend had died recently and his widow and his daughter, Kitty Friend, were closing the agency down. So, the Kirkendalls, I'm talking about Mrs. William Kirkendall and Allarae Morris, uh, her daughter, had asked her to get a professional agent. They had asked elsewhere to, to be the agent, but DeCamp didn't want to do that. He had other businesses he wanted to fool with. And uh, he suggested me since I had more or less had had an interest in Howard. So uh, I took it on even though I didn't know anything about being an agent. That was in 65. I had uh, the good fortune, I guess it was, of making the air something like a little about two and a half million dollars net in the time I was agent.
1: Okay. Well, you uh, have to get assignments from short stories to that bit of the business. Because somebody was uh, suggesting that maybe the heirs didn't have the rights to the common stories, right? So you had to go looking for assignments to protect them.
2: You mean the That was later on in the That was it just before that. It
1: was agent, right? That was actually became an agent.
2: That was just before the formation of Conan properties. Oh, okay. Well, tell us about the formation of common properties. <clears throat> I don't know if any of you are familiar with L. Sprague de Camp. I'm sure you are. Yep. I, uh, I had a lot of problems with the, with the man, I have to say. He claimed he had, had all rights just to the corn stories or that's a Republic domain. He had checked out with the Library of Congress on the titles of the individual stories. and of course there wasn't anything listed on those titles. So uh, Kirby McCauley, who was helping me, suggested that I go down and check the copyright books on uh, Weird Tales, not just the uh, title of the story. So I checked the title, the copyright books on Weird Tales and found out some of them have been renewed by Steinberg Press, some by Blanchard Press, (coughs) and others. So I got a assignment, I think I paid $10 for an assignment for the corner stores that had been renewed. That's, that's not all the corner stores that were renewed, just some of them. Of course, there were some corner stores that were in good shape, like the uh, ones at the camp turned into corner stores for Norm Res in 55. And there was a, a story uh, like uh, The Right Stranger and, and uh, God in the bowl. Those were in good, copyrights were in good shape.
1: Of course, during the 1950s, Oscar Friend had made Dr. Kirkendall an offer that it turned out he could refuse, right?
2: I think Dr. Kirkendall had made an offer to sell the corn stores to Oscar Friend, but it wasn't a terrific lot of money But Oscar Friend had kept cutting the price he was offering, willing to pay. So uh, finally Dr. Kirkendall said he, he thought he would just uh, continue with the going. Now, i by the way. He, uh, Owed uh, the Howard Ayers quite a bit of money whenever they, Marty Greenberg, decided to shut Norm down. And by the way, we never did get the money.
1: What well, was it that a friend had offered uh, Dr. Kirk Bones, no, about 1250
2: dollars or something? I think about
1: $1,250. That's for all the rest of the common stories. which, as Clint said, ended up making about $2 million. Um, well, go ahead and tell us, something one of the great stories that you've been involved in is your detective work in finding all the Howard, and finding the box of the Howard manuscripts. What's about tracking that down?
2: Yeah, I'll start with about, uh After the publication of all this eating, I finally found El, uh, E. Hoffman Price in Redwood City, California. I went out there in 61 to visit him, and I asked him if he had any hard stuff. He, he gave me a, a, a roll of a microfilm with some poetry on it that R.H. Barlow they made when, when the Druid Press was looking at the idea of Horace and Howard Boatry. So uh, Price told me he thought he had had a box full of tear sheets is what he called them that Dr. Kirkdahl hadn't seen him. He said, well, I think I loaned them to a guy named Stuart Boland. So he said, I'll write Boland and uh, ask him to send them to you. He wrote Boland. Boland was in, the, I think, South America at the time. But he replied, he came back and said, well, I gave the box to Francis uh, T. Laney. Only trouble was, Laney had died just recently. So, more forgot about it. Wouldn't make, make any difference anyway, just hair sheets. But when I became Asian, I got all of the Oscar Friend records and there was an inventory of stories made by, apparently, Otis Stein. There was a title I had never heard of, so I got to thinking, well, maybe those weren't just tear sheets, maybe they were manuscripts. So I wrote to Boland, and I asked him if he could help me find that box of, of tear sheets or manuscripts or whatever they are. So, Offered money. That was a perfect offer because Boland immediately said when he told me he just ran across there, a lady named Domenica G., who was Francis T. Laney, had hired to free type his manuscripts. That's a job I wouldn't want, by the way. And uh, I didn't believe him from the word go because he didn't give me a name, just Domenica G. But anyway, he gave me a price, and I paid him a few hundred dollars, and I got a box full of manuscripts. On total, I got about three boxes of manuscripts, and I finally got all the letters to H.P. Lovecraft that Bolden also had. So I suspect I paid Boland something like a thousand dollars altogether for all that stuff. Do you know how much?
1: Material you've got there? How many stories, poems, and so on? How many pages?
2: Well, there's several several reams anyway in it for sure. If you can imagine somebody taking a front end loader and dumping about 10 reams of paper, papers, loose papers, into a box, you can figure what kind of job I had sorting all this stuff out. So it's taken like about a week, right?
1: Yeah. Usually. How many hours have you spent over photocopier sending copies to people like me? You mean you or, mean, or my friends in uh, Paris?
2: Yeah. <laughs> oh, probably uh, thirty minutes.
1: <laughs> um, when it comes to Robert E. Howard, do you have favorite stories and characters?
2: Oh, I like, uh, Brigham Elkins. I like, uh, Solomon Cain. And I like Cole also, even though most of the stories are not really fantasy, except in the setting.
1: And particular stories of those characters you like best?
2: Oh, the, uh, Mirrors of Tutu and Thune, uh, Skulls and the Stars. Uh, I like. Well, it's just difficult to say. I, I like to so make different know, I, mean, I, I like the historicals also. The uh, Souls of the Thunder, a Shadow of the Vulture, the. Uh, Line of Tiberius.
1: What appeals to you about
2: him? I like the vivid action and the feeling in the stories. There's no, there's no uh, boredom to the stories. You're, you're, in that. You're into the uh, story of if you are reading it.
1: Leaving aside Cone, because we know that that publishing was already sort of underway by the time you became the agent. As the agent, what were your goals with regard to already e. How?
2: Well, the goals for the heirs was to get make them some money because they'd only made something like in the previous time between six between thirty-seven. That's the year after Howard died in '65, when I became agent, they had received something like maybe $6,000 gross in royalties. I'm talking about all the heirs. I'm talking about Dr. Howard, Dr. Kiergedahl, and Mrs. Kiergedahl, who of course re- received the uh, monies from uh, Dr. Kiergedahl when he died.
1: But when you went and set about trying to get Howard's work published, what was your. Did you have a game plan? Or did you just. Did people approach you? Did you go seeking them out?
2: I just went seeking them out. I I, uh, was lucky, I suppose. I found the Robert W. Lowndes magazine, magazine of horror. I submitted some manuscripts to them. And I put together. A uh, book of short stories, and submitted them to Lancer Books. That was both said and others. And I put together the Branwright Morris Stories, and I s- submitted that to Lancer Books, but the editor at Lancer went to Dale, and he took the book with him. It was my blessing. And uh, so that's why it was a Dale book. Somebody
1: was asking, uh, do you have a, what's your opinion of the pastiches and the unauthorized continuations and other publications of Howard?
2: Can I do it this way?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Y'all weren't there at Howard Days last year, Glenn was on a panel with Roy Thomas and somebody asked him what his opinion was of the first Conan comic, and he said, well, it didn't make me vomit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And David and Morgan and I were talking last night about this. uh, When you put together the book of Robert E. Howard and the second book of Robert E. Howard for Zebra, did you have a grand plan in mind for those?
2: Just a sort of a sampler of different Robert E. Howard uh, stories. Did you pick them because they, the stories
1: themselves appeal to you or just because they represented a range or hadn't been published or? Well, some of each. Okay. I'll ask Al, if you have any questions, jump in here. Uh, do you have
2: any stories about uh,
1: with, uh, August and Arkham House. Do you have any questions or do you have any stories about um, August Derleth and Arkham House and you and Howard? You know, that all this comes even.
2: Well, no, I got along with Derleth pretty well. He uh, treated me pretty fairly. I suppose one of the last stories that Albert Durrlee ever completed was The House in the Oaks. That was an unfinished manuscript, and he, he completed it, and then he went home and died, you might say, because he died very shortly thereafter. How, uh, how did Zebra come about
1: to be uh, such
0: a major publisher of power during the 70s?
2: Kirby McCauley had, was in touch with Zebra. Funny thing about it, the president, of the, the head of Zebra was a guy named Walter Zacharias, who had been president of Lancia Books. And also the editor at uh, Zebra was a lady who had worked for Lancia Books. So I suppose they knew about Howard from Lancer Books. sent it to Donald Grant, and Grant sent it back saying, I like it, but it's too much about noveling and not not enough about REH. So I asked her to rewrite it. With some trepidation, she did so, and that was what was published.
1: And of course, the guys who did the movie then were students of hers, and and so now the complaint that we sometimes hear online is that there's too much of non- novel non- non- <laughs> <laughs> and not enough variation. I'm like, well, it's told from her point of view.
0: Yeah, just the title is "We Walked Alone," so it it's kind of uh, hard, the whole other world.
1: Any other questions? Yeah. In your working career, did you have anything to do with secret women?
2: No, I did write to Quinn once that's gonna be a ever correspondent with Howard, but he replied he had not. I think he died not too long after then. Sixty nine. Such surprised
1: were were there any of the other Weird Tales authors that you have much
2: dealings with? I used to I used to know Kirk Mashman. That was one of E. Hop and Price's closest friends. He lived in Houston. That's the only weird tail writer or anything you deal with, I guess. What oh, was Oh, he's a kind of quiet guy, he, uh, he had a bad, bad case of uh, emphysema, I believe it was, and that's what killed him. But he was also opinionated, kind of like Rice, but wasn't quite so blunt about some things. Fried would tell you that you are a wage slave because you work for a living. And he had other strong opinions about everything. Some of them I won't repeat.
1: <laughs> so he and Clyde Smith might have got a long period,
2: Possibly. Clyde Smith uh, didn't think much of it became.
1: Clyde Smith said uh, was a pretty strong opinion that he guy from what I gather. Yes. Tell us about your first meeting with Clyde.
2: Tell us about your first meeting
1: with Tell us about your first meeting with Clyde Smith. Yeah. <coughs>
2: I came to Brownwood, and I, I called him up a couple of times, and finally he, he went into the phone, and finally I got an invitation to come to his house, and I talked to him briefly. After that, though, he started calling me on the phone, so it wasn't too long before he got kind of friend, eh? Even though he had a, a box full of letters of, to, from over the hour, he never told me about those. It was only after his death that his nephew, Roy Barkley, found the letters and told me about them. You met David
1: Lee, too, right?
2: Yeah. That's
1: right. What was uh, David Lee like?
2: Just a big, quiet guy. He told me, I asked him about the Howard uh, rumored uh, collision of the flagpole in Rising Star. He said, yeah, I was one of them. He named the other guys who were with him. So I guess there was a collision of the flagpole.
1: But uh, Howard, might have exaggerated it just a little bit.
2: Yeah, we, uh, he exaggerated nearly everything he did.
1: <laughs> and Lindsay Tyson you met and got along with, too, right? Oh, yes. So all three of Robert's best friends up there you've met. Yes. I think you're one of the few people that day, Howard thinks he met that day way before he died.
2: I think, uh, let's see, Howard Rolver must have made him.
0: Yes. Uh, when did the town cross planes really start to recognize the celebrity value of Howard and start to take advantage
2: of that? I'm not quite sure exactly when, but I guess it must have been in about in the eighties. Is that when they they bought the Howard House? Yeah. About about the eighties when they bought the Howard House. The Howard House has just been sitting there. And all, all grown up with ivy on the side of the building. They have re- restored it pretty well and got period here in it. It's a pretty nice now. It's made a kind of a museum out of it.
0: W- were you out there uh, watering it down when the fire started? To- oh no. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the next door
1: neighbor was literally out there with his garden hose. Watering it down to the, before the fire department got to. Do they get a lot of visitors besides on Howard uh, on Howard days? Yeah. So throughout the years. Throughout a- the years. If you if you're ever in Cross Plains and you, there's a number on the side of the house that you can call and somebody will come down and show you around. They've had some uh, this past was I guess it was last year uh, just after Howard days. Bruce Boxleitner, the actor, was at a rodeo in Appleton decided to make the side trip over and turn out his big yeah. Let's see, i got a two-fold
0: question for Glenn. Glenn, from the time you started working on Always Comes the Evening in, in the 50s to the time that Clark Ashton Smith died in the 60s, did you ever contact him via letter or telephone?
2: You call my Smith? Clark Ashton Smith, yeah. I visited him in 1959.
0: In Auburn? Pacific
2: Grove. Yeah, I went to his house and there was a sign on the wall that says, Warning, artists at work, do not knock or ring before six PM. I wasn't about to drive away back to Texas, drive all the way to California. So I knocked him. the dragon lady, if I can use that term, came to the door. Smith was behind her. I said, I'm the guy who compiled the Arkham House traction all these come to the evening, so she invited me in. So I got to, I got to talk, visit with Smith. She went back upstairs with somebody else. And Smith was kind of an uncommunicated sort of person. He's quite, quite, quite a quiet guy. I found out that the book at Arkham House had announced at one time that it was supposed to be an inventory of Smith's carvings. He was supposed to have been working on that, but it never came out. I don't know why. I wish I had bought a Smith's carving while I was there, but I didn't.
0: Our dual friend of ours, Dan Gott, has uh, the rejection letter that uh, Howard got from Thrills of the Jungle. And since Hersey's uh, sort of a pet project of mine, I found that kind of interesting that, that Hersey sent back his story. Or um, there a lot of rejection letters left in the Howard estate?
2: Oh, not sure a bunch of them. There was a bunch of them. It was a bonus. I should have bonus at the same matter. 20 or 30, maybe, altogether, in the box of of material I got from Bowling.
0: What was the magazines, do you recall?
2: The magazines? The magazines that
0: that rejected
2: power. Weird tales. (laughs) Oh, weird tales and, of course, uh, Mac publications one was a one rejection, and uh, he got rejected uh, by the survey group several times, legal marketers. He got rejected by A.H. H- Bittner of Argosy. Uh, That's my favorite rejection letter. <laughs>
1: it says, it's real simple. It just says, Dear Mr. Howard, the Night of the Wolf is a lot too vague and slow-moving for Argosy you <laughs> ever read The Night of the Wolves and then you read a Harvest, you a Fred McIsaac story, you're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> movie negotiations, getting the movie done?
2: No, I believe one did most of that, that was the attorney for common Properties. But the movie led directly to the formation of common Properties, right? Yeah, that was the idea for the formation, so there wouldn't be any dissent any, among the rights owners so they could negotiate with the movie company with, a, one, with one one face speaking of Father and that reminds me he was a Jewish lawyer case you can tell by his name he visited uh, Schwarzenegger at his apartment or home and when he walked in Arnold was playing Hitler speeches on his loudspeaker.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: trying to make Arnold feel it, I mean trying to make uh, Lewisman feel it at home, I guess. <laughs> Seven months of negotiations. <laughs>
0: Scott? Speaking of negotiations, Glenn, um, what part did you take in the Lancer negotiations?
2: Lancer, actually none. That was the camp.
0: You didn't work as, as as agent to coordinate any kind of monies. Or he had he had all the properties. He had all the negotiating. What rights or or they didn't go through you guys at all.
2: Well, the camp, he did did it on his own. Right. However, when I got created to sell the comic book rights, I went ahead and sold them. I didn't talk to De camp or our answer either one about that because I hadn't given any rights. How did you go about it? how did you get the uh, comic book rights going? Well, Laurie Thomas had written a letter in which we be possible to get rights to the character for the comic books for Marvel. I said, sure. So that's Who I dealt with.
1: And he offered you a vast amount of money, right? Well, not
2: exactly a vast amount, but uh, better than
1: nothing. (laughs) (laughs) How do you think the uh, comments affected the
2: popularity of Howard's work? Well, I'm sure there's people here who don't care for them, but uh, they helped somewhat. Did you see a big boost in
1: people requesting rights to Howard stories or a little bit or not? A little bit. When you look around at the uh, state of Howard Publishing today, do you
2: have any thoughts on that? It seems to be going back very strongly. It's uh, one thing, it's not being um, messed up by a bunch of pastiches. At least most of the books that are, are works nowadays, are of cynic power. There's nothing somebody else has written and, and stuck in there with it. Like the Campbell Carter did with the Conan stories, and so forth.
1: Are there any particular illustrators of Howard that you like?
2: Oh, I like Gianni, and I like, of course, Brazeda. Isn't there a bit of this also? I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs>
1: other Questions out
0: there?
1: Back. Who handles the rights to the Howard uh, estate now? And let us retired and is going to another the venue? There's a young lady named Lee Stone in Paradox Entertainment that is the licensing manager and handles all the rights.
2: The Howard estate has been sold, of course, Cornham Properties too, has been sold to Paradox Entertainment.
1: Yeah, they first bought common properties and then later they bought Robert e. Howard properties, so they own all of Robert e. Howard's works so under one umbrella They're mainly again, they're they're a licensing company, so they're primarily interested in role-playing games and uh, movies and the like. And they uh, last year approached me and Paul Herman about creating a nonprofit foundation, the Robert e. Howard Foundation, to put a fire out there. Um, to work with getting most of Robert e. Howard's work into print, but also to promote a scholarship of Robert, you know, with Robert e. Howard Studies, to uh, try to get all of his work back into print, to promote Howard days and Project Pride at the Robert e. Howard Museum. So they were really instrumental in helping set up this nonprofit foundation that would try to advance the state of Robert e. Howard's studies but they recognize that part of it was that they said they recognized that their expertise was in licensing and films and money making stuff, not publishing. You got any of those thoughts you want to share with people about uh, Paul's collecting and something that crowd might be interested in?
2: You might be it. In the various countries where there have been higher publications, he's been published in several editions in Brazil. He has appeared in Argentina briefly, he has appeared in Japan naturally, in Turkey, Bulgaria, Romania, Estonia, Croatia, Finland, Norway. Sweden, Hungary, Italy, Germany, Belgium, France, Netherlands, Spain, just about all of Europe except Austria and uh, Switzerland.
1: Yeah, I call you once asking me first. if I know anybody in mean Greece.
2: Yeah, he appeared in Greece also.
1: <laughs> which reminds me, do we have anybody here who knows Russian? Because Glenn's got a Russian book that he wants to know which, what the title is.
0: <laughs>
1: which foreign language editions have sold the best? Which foreign language editions have sold the best? I don't know. they didn't always uh, provide loyalty statements, I think. <laughs> <laughs> is really popular in some countries. Morgan City found there used to be a lot of yeah, in Russia, sure, right? It used to be, but when not, I was there, so in Moscow, in December,
2: There's nothing. Oh, you're here in St. Petersburg, you can go to Severo, there's press. That's the Northwest Press in St. Petersburg. They have published an edition to Conan, K-O-H-A-H in Cyrillic. That's K-O-N-A-N, if you want to in English language. Kind of in English alphabet, They have something like a hundred and thirty something titled titles on their list so far. That's hardbacks. About three hundred something pages each each one. And all of you have in zero, right? Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Most of it's very written under English names. Like Olive Lightning or something Wayne Wright. You, you can just by picking any kind of name you want, and have used it.
1: Tom, did you have a question, or were you cutting this off software? let just give me a 5 more. Okay. Um, speaking of Pulse, I know that for a while you were working, you were thinking about working on an index to uh, Fight Stories or maybe the Fiction House magazines, but you gave that up?
2: No, I'm giving it up just sort of. Retiring, for the time being.
1: <laughs> so, Tom? Is there a gratification in seeing all the material off the TypeScripts as how it with the Wandering Starbucks and the other editions that come out where they no longer have an editor's hand on it? Do you feel any gratification in seeing stuff that comes directly from the TypeScripts as opposed to being yeah. heavily edited?
2: Yes, but, of course, we don't have um, manuscripts or typescripts for some of the stories. Because, you know, most of the magazines, public magazines, they would just destroy the manuscript until they reset the material. Do
1: you recall which fanzine um, you read about at Dalmerich?
2: I don't recall which one I've heard. I've heard a rumors, strong one or two. Completed out there. It was in
1: some fanzine. I remember you telling me that you'd seen it in some fanzine. There was a first draft of tail up in the synopsis, which Howard did frequently. And then the beginning of the second draft. They used the beginning of the second draft and then the synopsis. But of course, most of us don't think chapter 12 is really the end of
2: The Howard uh, agent's records don't indicate who completed it. Obviously, it wasn't uh, Otis Klein who thought he would take his cut and he would show it if he did. Oscar Friend didn't show anything, so he would have took his cut too. Scott?
1: Kind of, or, I guess, John Edwards. Great, Scott.
0: Glenn, did you have any opinion about the editing Don Grant did on the. Uh Solomon Kane and some of the other ones concerning racism and Howard, did you feel he shouldn't have taken that out? Or?
2: I didn't know that it, that didn't happen. I don't think he should have bothered with it.
0: What, what do you feel about the controversy that's, that sort of grew, that, uh, that apparently one of the reasons for Howard committing suicide is because he was owed so much money by Farnsworth uh,
2: Wright? You know, it depends on whether you want to commit suicide over $800. That's why you would owe $800-something.
0: Uh, you may have answered this already, and if so, I apologize, but where are the Howard papers today? When existing?
2: What, what do you mean with papers?
0: Uh, are there any manuscripts, letters, and so forth? Are they in a library or a collection somewhere? I've got most of them.
2: I guess you could say it's in my direction. <laughs> it's not going to give you the address of the storage.
1: <laughs> but you have plans for them, don't you? Yeah, eventually. <laughs> Can you tell? <laughs> <laughs> i
2: like a problem when I poke on ocean, who knows? <laughs> you heard Start
1: attending. All time. you.
0: This more question for you.
2: For those of us who have not been across planes, were we to go there? The items in the house and things, are there any of, of uh, Robert Howard's property art Howard,
1: actual items still in the house? Is there's a, a writer or his writing desk? His I mean, actual typewriter, no. Um, allegedly, a collector named uh, Jake Ornette in California owns that tie fryer and he's got a chain of problems, some people question it. It's kind of but he supposedly has that. Uh, Sprague the Camp donated a bust of Cleopatra to Howard, to Howard's known. Supposedly it was one of Robert's acquisitions from New Orleans when he was 13. Um, a little camel inkwell that uh, a Syrian member of the legislature, uh, he was a merchant who, I guess, knew the Howards, said to Robert, there are three framed Frank prints in the living room that belong to the Howards. So there's a few. Obviously. And then uh, Don Heron, last year, through a friend of his, um, found some of Dr. Howard's books that had been in some of his attic. And he donated those to Project Pride, and they're sitting in the living room you now in a nice little glass front bookcase. So, so it's all it's about all the recreation are some. There's some authentic stuff in there, and the, the recreation is really nicely done, too. So um, I think you know, anybody who's an hour fan or a half fan certainly
2: owes it to themselves. Should. He didn't have high beams electric, by the way. Pardon? I say he did not have high beams electric, by the way. <laughs> or computer either.
1: No, so if you find those typescripts that uh, look like they were done on selector, that was probably one of his transcripts. You were saying earlier you didn't envy that job of the woman the making the types the transcripts, but you made a lot of them yourself.
2: Yeah. Some cases it would be poor poor quality uh, carbons. Some cases the paper would be just be torn up.
0: This this business of weird tales, oh, and Howard, so much money. Did did they, they, did they do that because they knew he was way down in Texas and wasn't likely to show up at their door with uh, (laughs) a gun? And and this Klein was was right there, and Klein had contacts with Bright. Did did Howard ever feel that Klein wasn't doing the job for him up there? How how did he get in that deep?
1: Klein actually, yeah. Klein was in Chicago. Yeah, but Howard uh, actually, when he uh, he tried to get August, he gave some stuff to August Lanager and gave some stuff to, or not to Leninger, he talked to Lanager, but he gave some stuff to COCO, the agent for him, and then Klein got us, got a shirt up about it, but Howard was trying to get some other people to agent his stuff, I think he was thinking that maybe Klein was aggressive
2: enough about marketing. Howard sold directly to Weird Tales and he didn't go to an agent.
1: That's right. Yeah. He sold directly to uh, Fiction House, too, didn't he?
2: No, I think you went to an agent on the Fiction yeah. House. I'm
0: oh, about halfway through uh, Price's Book of the Dead. I just put that off for several of years. And that's, that's just a terrific book. And Price pretty much comes out and says that Weird Tales had money and they just weren't paying. And I just...
1: That's, yeah, that's what Price says, and that's what he told Dr. Howard, and Dr. Howard certainly believed that, but, Um yeah, said Price talking, you know, <laughs> can, you, can you absolutely believe it or not, um, yeah, they owed him a lot of money, it was the Depression, they owed him a lot of money.
2: Um, you wouldn't want to pay the shirt anything around uh, e and Price talking. <laughs> And also, you know,
1: Don, I know Don was going on and on about the, uh, and I I probably having Farmworth right and stuff because they owe him so much money. But you read the correspondence of E.H. Price and H. P. Lovecraft and those guys and Clark Hesham-Smith and, and, man, those guys sandwiched Farmworth right. They just on him right and Robert E. Howard almost never said anything negative about Farmworth right to these guys. He really didn't badmouth him at all, so I don't think I would really have that hard feeling toward him, right? I think he wanted his money and he was upset that he wasn't getting the money that he did. but mainly because, of, because his mother, because of his mother's health, he needed cash. And so we, the letter that he wrote about how badly I needed cash, I mean, that was a time when they were really strapped. His mother needed some immediate medical care and he needed cash and they didn't miss the payment. So I think that was what got him upset.
0: I would have lived in what
1: direction in what direction do you think he would have gone if he lived
2: he probably would have started writing western stories more frequently than he had been Street and Smith paid him whenever he sold stuff to them I suspect that was one of the reasons he would willing to pull with Street Smith on westerns or or. Our adventure stories. You get a check for Street Smith. You wouldn't get a check from popular fiction.
1: Okay, well we got the high sign. It's time for us to give way to the radio players. I think that's all.
0: For You've been listening to a Pulp Event podcast brought to you by the Pulp Net. When your next adventure was just a dime away, please visit us online at the Pulp Nat. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps.